As we stand, let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Four years ago, at the end of the summer, when the then presidential and vice presidential candidates were in the region, I had an encounter with two parishioners on the lawn after church. The first person greeted me and said, I must tell you, I had a great afternoon yesterday. I got to see Barack Obama. He was absolutely wonderful. And I smiled and said, that's great. And I took maybe... 10 paces across the lawn when another parishioner approached me and said, I'm so excited, I'm dashing off right now to go to Washington, PA. Sarah Palin is speaking and it's going to be fantastic. And I smiled and said, that's great. (laughs) One of the things I love about Ascension is that we're made up of all sorts of people representing a large political spectrum and sharing a pew on any given Sunday, I can spot staunch Republicans worshipping side by side equally staunch Democrats. Although in most pews, I frankly don't know what people's political views are, and that's just fine. (laughs) Today, we continue our 10 Tough Questions series, and the topic before us is how should Christians engage in politics? I thought of moving that glass protector around the drums and putting it sort of (laughs) around the pulpit, but uh, I'm going to trust you. Um, Notwithstanding the unity that we really do share as brothers and sisters in Christ and as a worshipping community here in this place, we all know that we live in a country that is deeply divided politically. There is not general agreement among many people, Christian or otherwise, even as to what the government is for, let alone concerning for whom we should vote. But before I dig into this subject a little deeper, I want to make three things clear, three three disclaimers, if you like. Uh, First, I am not yet a citizen, though my application is in process. Uh, But I'm not here to lecture you about American politics. I'm here to stand with you under the authority of the word of God, as together we seek to discern what God might have to say to us about this subject. Second, my intention this morning is not to score party political points, though I will be saying some things that are critical of the two main parties, which I don't suppose you will all like. And third, I am not, of course, going to presume to tell you which candidates you should vote for on November the 6th. Three years ago, a man called Mark Damos launched something called the Civility Project. He was concerned about the increasingly harsh tone of public political discourse. And Mark is a Republican, a businessman, and a political advisor. He teamed up with Lanny Davis, a Democrat lobbyist and former aide to President Bill Clinton. And together, these two men wrote to all 100 U.S. senators all 435 members of the House of Representatives and all 50 state governors, asking them to sign a pledge that promised three things. 
I will be civil in my public discourse and behavior. I will be respectful of others, whether or not I agree with them. I will stand against incivility when I see it. Now, thousands of members of the public had already signed uh, this pledge. How many of those 585 political leaders do you think were willing to sign? 300? 150? No, more than none. Um, 150? 100? 50? 10? There were three. Just three. I'll give you the names afterwards if you like. <laughs> Sadly, Thursday's vice presidential debate was, in some measure, one more example of what the Civility Project was trying to address. On Friday, Washington Post columnist Michael Gerson, speaking in a radio uh, address for the Center for Public Justice, said this. The vice presidential debate raised many important questions about social equity, foreign policy management, and the value of human life. Both Vice President Biden and Congressman Paul Ryan had moments when they explained their views passionately and well. But for those who don't follow politics and policy very closely, tuning into the debate was probably an un unpleasant experience. Biden displayed an aggressive bullying style that often made a genuine discussion impossible. He greeted Ryan's points with mocking laughter and by one count interrupted his opponent more than 80 times. Ryan maintained his composure, but something sometimes seemed at a loss on how to respond. Um, Gerson went on to say, no party or ideology, of course, has a corner on civility. Rudeness is a staple of cable news and the internet, so common that we hardly even notice it. But, you know, it's not just the politicians or media commentators who are guilty of incivility. How have you been engaging in political debate? What do you say to your colleagues at work? What do you put on your Facebook pages? I know what some of you put, because I've seen it. How have our words lived up to the scriptural injunction we find in James chapter 4 not to speak evil against one another? Let us not be too quick uh, to be on the defensive either, justifying harsh words as righteous anger. As one who loves to debate, I know winning arguments can so easily become a higher priority than speaking the truth in love, or sometimes from speaking the truth at all. Politics today often brings out the worst in us. How easily we become proud or arrogant, self-righteous, and unforgiving. No wonder so many people have already mentally checked out of this year's presidential campaign. I spoke to one of our young adults a few weeks ago asking that person if she was going to watch the debates. Oh no, she said, I I'm not really into politics. I get so bored with all the arguing. In some ways, I can't say I blame her. But is that how Christians should engage in politics? By disengaging? I don't think so. But how should we engage? Is there a Christian way? Is there a simple formula? What does the Bible have to say about this? You know, the biblical narrative is a story filled with politics and high drama all the way through. But this morning, I'm going to focus on just eight verses from Matthew's Gospel 
in which we encountered Jesus being pushed into a very tight political corner. It's worth reminding ourselves that Jesus lived in Roman-occupied Palestine. He was surrounded by all sorts of polarized political views. There were the Herodians, who were effectively collaborators. King Herod was the Jewish puppet king. He was the king of the Romans. And, and there were the Pharisees who were vehemently opposed to the Herodians and, of course, to the occupation. And there were the Zealots who advocated armed uprising. They were the freedom fighters or terrorists, depending on which news station you listen to. And then there were the Essenes who wanted to wash their hands of the whole lot and retreated into the desert. And there were the scribes and the Sanhedrin and the lawyers. It was a very hot political zone. Still is, actually. But this, then, is the context in which we encounter Jesus this morning. Verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Well, we don't have to go any further to realize immediately that this is a political situation. The Pharisees are out to entrap Jesus. And they go to him with, of all people, the Herodians, people with whom they shared almost nothing in common except their opposition to Jesus. Teacher, they say, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Which is political speak for, you call yourself a teacher? We don't trust you as far as we can throw you. You clearly don't teach anything from God, and now we're going to nail you. So tell us, teacher. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? And by implication, answer us yes or no. Sounds like a perfectly simple and straightforward question to us, maybe, but in reality, it's a trick question and a potential lose-lose for Jesus. If Jesus says, uh, yes, pay the tax, then the Pharisees would have been outraged. This was a tax payable to the occupying forces of the Roman Empire. And it was an abomination to any right-thinking Jew. But if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, then the Herodians would have had him arrested for sedition. But, verse 18, Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? But look at what Jesus does in the next verse. Show me a coin used for the tax, he says. Now, a denarius was a relatively low-value coin, worth maybe a day's wage for a day laborer, not a huge amount. But boy, was it ever a controversial tax. It was what we in England would call a poll tax, and I think you here call a head tax. A tax you had the privilege of paying just by virtue of breathing. In 1992, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher introduced a poll tax in England, and the reaction was swift and violent. 200,000 people marched on Trafalgar Square, and there followed days of rioting up and down the country. Indeed, such was the unpopularity of the poll tax that it was one of the reasons that led to Mrs. Thatcher's downfall 
and was abolished immediately. Well, in first century Palestine, the head tax was no less controversial. But it went deeper than merely being an unpopular tax on your existence. It was a tax that had huge religious significance. And there's something else we need to understand to really get inside this. About 25 years before this encounter that we've just read about, there was a man called Judas the Galilean, and he had led a revolt over this tax. And in that revolt, he did three things. He cleansed the temple with an armband. He called on Jews to refuse to pay the tax, and he proclaimed that God was king, not Caesar, and promised to bring in the kingdom of God. And he was arrested um, and executed. But do you see the similarity now with Jesus? Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. And right before this encounter, if you look in the Gospels, you will find, what has Jesus just done? He's just cleansed the temple. He's thrown over the money changers' tables and all the rest of it. So what would he do about the third piece of this? Reclaim the kingdom of God. He's cleansed the temple. What about the tax? Would he say pay or not pay? And if he says don't pay the tax, he's effectively calling for an armed revolt and he will be crushed by the authorities. And if he says yes, pay it, everyone who's heard him talking about the kingdom of God will say, well, he's all talk and he's not really worth anything. Boy, this is trickier than it looks. Now, I should say I'm very grateful to Pastor Tim Keller and Bishop Tom Wright for their teaching on this passage, which I'm drawing on this morning. You know, when we read Kingdom of God, I think many of us tend to read it as meaning something purely spiritual. You know, God lives in my heart and gives me inner peace. And that's actually a very modern way of thinking. It, it's, a, it's a product of enlightenment thinking that says, keep religion and spirituality private because it's got nothing to do with the public sector. But in Jesus' day, no one would have thought that way. Faith and religion had everything to do with everything. The kingdom of God was not merely about spiritual inner peace. The kingdom of God was being heralded in to actually do something about poverty and injustice, to deal with hunger and suffering. Do you remember Jesus' first sermon when he goes to the synagogue and they bring in the scrolls and he opens them up and he says, reading from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when he'd said that, Jesus said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And on that day, the people were amazed. And in this scene, when they've come to trip him up and trap him, when Jesus gives his answer, they are once again amazed. He refuses to give them a yes or no response but what he does and what he says is not remotely bland, and nor is it a cop-out. And there's one more extraordinary irony in this scene. It's hard for us to understand, but it's almost as if, you know, for us, it would be like there was a tax that said, this is a tax that demonstrates that you uh, will worship President Obama. That might stir most of us up, whatever you political persuasions. 
So Jesus says to them, whose head is it on this coin? And what's the inscription? And they say, well, it's the emperor's. And of course, we know what a denarius looks like. There are plenty of them uh, available in museums. On this coin was the image of the emperor Tiberius. And the inscription on the coin said this. Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus, Pontifus Maximus, high priest. King, son of God, high priest. Jesus, who is the king of kings, Jesus, who is the son of God, Jesus, who is the great high priest, is holding a coin that says those titles belong to Tiberius. And Jesus says to them, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. There are three things that I want you to see here. First, Jesus refuses political simplicity. He will not give them the blunt yes or no that they demand. And I think we need to do likewise and refuse to approach political issues as if they are simple. I believe that as Christians we should not say that party, that program, that platform, that politician is the Christian one. That's what or who Jesus is for, not the other one. Lots of people do that, however. Lots of people say, well, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, well, you must vote for this party or that party. They say, how could a Christian with a brain in their head who believes the Bible possibly vote for, and you can fill in the blank. But Jesus doesn't do that. It's not that simple. All right, second. Jesus is not complacent. He takes them on. He, he answers their question, just not the way they want him to. Give to Caesar his money, minted out of his wealth, with his image on it. But give to God what has God's image on it, which is, of course, as Andy was saying to the children, giving ourselves to God. And third, Jesus will not give primacy to politics. Or in other words, politics is not the answer to the problems in the world. The outcome of the election in three weeks' time is not actually a do or die for America. Our destiny as a nation, as a church, as disciples of Jesus, does not ultimately rest in the hands of politicians. Our hope and our future lies with God himself. Jesus' response to those out to trick him is... Translated, some of you may be familiar with the King James Version, which says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And render is a fairly nuanced term, translating a difficult word because it doesn't just mean give like they asked him. It means give back that which is owed to the emperor, but only that. And render or give back to God all that is rightfully his, which is, of course, everything. It was 
very clever, very political. It's kind of wasn't the kind of limited government they were used to because they had dictators and you had to do everything, right? And then, but Jesus is saying, no, it's not like that. To whom do you give your full allegiance? And I think Jesus would say to us, don't give to your country or your work or your family or yourself allegiance that must be given first and foremost to God. Jesus is refusing to say, yes, let's revolt, but neither will he say, just acquiesce and be nice patriotic citizens that don't rock the boat. There is an authority of God over Caesar, over every Caesar, and over every empire. The kingdom of God is coming. And Jesus was saying, I am bringing it, but not in the way that you think. King Jesus is bringing in a different concept of kingship and a different concept of revolution. He is, to quote Keller, revolutionizing revolution. You know, you can always stop the zealots, the Barabbases of this world, the Bin Ladens of this world. But you can't stop Jesus. They tried, they nailed him to a cross, they buried him and said, there's, that's dealt with that radical, he'll never disturb us again. Hmm, really? Only God's kingdom will prevail in the end. And his kingdom is radical, political, powerful. And God has always required of us, as the prophet Micah puts it, to do justice, to love mercy, or kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And I want to to draw things uh, to a close here with five quick takeaways for you. First, don't panic, the Lord reigns. Resist the temptation to think that your party must win the next election or all will be lost forever. Resist easy quick fixes. Resist the sound bites. As Christians, let us not forget that no candidate, no platform, no party has all the answers. Okay, second, do justice. God is concerned about the downtrodden, the poor, and the defenseless, and so should we. If we come here Sunday by Sunday and have a great time in worship and fellowship, but on Monday to Saturday we take advantage of others or fail to help those less fortunate than ourselves, we should listen again to those words that we heard read from Isaiah chapter 58. That can be some of your homework. Third, love kindness, not hatred. We are to hate evil, but not people. Can we purge our hearts and minds and speech from all hateful talk? You know, if you are in the habit of saying, well, uh, hate the sin, but love the sinner, would you be willing to stop saying that? You see, the sinner who hears you likely won't get past the first part, which is the hate part. As we saw three weeks ago with the woman caught in adultery, Jesus did not say to her, now I hate your sin, uh, but I love you. He didn't say that. He said, Neither do I condemn you after everybody else had slinked away. He said, neither do I condemn you. 
but go your way and sin no more. But you know, today, many Christians, especially amongst young people, are viewed as haters, as those who hate gays or hate people who've had an abortion or are just plain judgmental. That's the perspective that surveys show many young people have of us. Now, of course, we must be uncompromising on gospel principles. Our hearts should break over the killing of millions of unborn children. But let us not label every person who is pro-choice as being an advocate for murder. How many people today have actually been persuaded that at some stages an unborn child is not a person? The answer is a lot. You know, a few years ago, I I walked past a church in this neighborhood. I'm not going to say which church it was. And on their front lawn was a black and white image. It was an abortion poster. I can't remember exactly what was on it. But the slogan was something like, abortion is murder. And I had a visceral reaction that I tell you I was not expecting. It hit me as I looked at that poster. If I had been a woman who had had an abortion... I would have known deep within my soul that I would not be welcome at that church. And I would have felt guilt and shame and presume only that they would hate me. Now, whether objectively that's true is not the point. That's how I felt. Let's be politically active, yes. But let us be careful what we say and how We say it. And let us show by our actions that we who profess to love God are kind and that we love people by what we do. Are there single parents we can support? Will we come alongside the young woman who may have an unwanted pregnancy? Dare we even agree to work with those who may disagree about the rights and wrongs of abortion in order to work together to reduce the number of abortions, to help provide genuine alternatives for women considering abortion? So don't panic. Do justice. Love kindness. And fourthly, walk humbly. I started off with a story against the... uh, Democratic Party, I guess, with that comments I made about the debate. Well, there's one here about the Republican Party. You can beat me up afterwards. But I, I watched the Republican Party convention the other week, and I saw all the placards and the people shouting, we built it. And all I could think of was Deuteronomy chapter 11, which says this. When you have eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then do not exalt yourself, forgetting the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness. He made water flow for you and fed you in the wilderness with manna. Do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. How easily, whether we are Republicans, Democrats, or Independents, how easily do we forget that all that we have 
comes from God who made us and in whose image we are made. And we are simply his stewards and we owe everything to him. Everything to him whose image is stamped upon us. The gospel humbles us, whatever we vote for, and reminds us that each one of us is such a big part of the problems around us. Just before the First World War, the Times newspaper in England had asked a number of authors to write on the, tub- on the topic, what's wrong with the world? The shortest published response said this, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Fifthly, fifth and final takeaway this morning is an exhortation to pray. In the second verse of America the Beautiful, we find these words, America, America, God mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law. When you pray, ask, where does the Republican Party need mending? Where does the Democratic Party need mending? What are my flaws? Where do I need self-control? Where do I need to come under God's law? We believe that God has called us at Church of the Ascension to share Christ's healing with a broken world. This is not because we have all been made whole and we know how to fix everyone else. Rather, it is that we, who are ourselves broken, want to share the redeeming love of God with other broken people. Yes, we believe that God can heal and restore and mend that which is broken in us and in our world. But we're a work in progress being made whole, not whole yet. And the king we worship, the God we serve, is the God who himself was broken for our sakes and whose blood was poured out for us. And so we come week by week to remember and celebrate that good news as we come to the table, not presuming or trusting in our own righteousness, but in his great mercies. We come like one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. So don't panic. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God and pray. Pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And finally, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. Amen.